Guys, welcome to the Ground Floor Podcast. Our guest today is an extremely exciting one and quite a personal one to me. He's an entrepreneur and was one of the co-founders of Pouch, a company that was the second company ever to get all five offers on Dragon's Den and is currently the co-founder and CFO of London Reporting House. C-O-O. COO of London Reporting House. <laughs> We're going to leave that in. <laughs> yeah, uh, welcome to the studio, uh, my uh, my friend and my old boss, Ben Corrigan. Thank you very much. Of course, for I forgot me. about those days when you used to work with Ben. Yeah. Oh God, okay. Yeah, many, many moons ago. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. When was that? That was 2016. 2017. 2017. Yeah, yeah, 2017. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so that was a long time ago. So, um, Ben, thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Good to be here. No worries. So, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great spot we've got. Um, so just for everyone listening who might not know about you, just give like a quick kind of couple of minutes of like what you, you know, what you do, who you are, and, and what you did. Yeah, sure. So currently, I'm the co-founder and COO of a company called London Reporting House. Um, I was just explaining to you guys before we turn the cameras on, it's kind of a complicated business to get into um, at dinner parties or barbecues because it's like a very niche part of the financial markets. Uh, we operate in what's called the repo markets, which no one's ever heard of, um, <laughs> <laughs> even though actually the repo market is the largest market in all financial services by volume. So around 13 and a half trillion euros a week are transacted. Oh, wow. Trillion. Wow. Are transacted in the repo markets it's in much need of um transparency most other markets are very transparent such as the equities markets or the commodities markets or currencies but this enormous market is very opaque and so our mission is to bring transparency to that market uh using this is when it gets boring <laughs> <laughs> regulatory reporting data Yummy. um it is actually a very very uh good idea if I say so myself um, it actually wasn't my idea it got brought into the business um, as a, as a co-founder um, well actually I think it brought in I founded it but um, uh, with two others and uh, that's where it gets a little bit uh, boring but it's a, it's a financial market data business um, it's got huge potential for scale uh, you know our potential clients or prospective clients are all the biggest you know, banks asset managers and hedge funds which is a marked difference to my previous career uh where i was uh, co-founder and chief revenue officer that was it cro i was gonna say it if <laughs> you weren't it? yeah because you were my line manager yeah, so i remember that has drilled yeah. into my head i wore many hats but it was yeah. revenue and, and basically sales and business development a bit of marketing as well um and that uh was a uh, do you want me to go into what pouch was yeah i think that's the main thing that people will probably probably know you for yeah sure so so pouch um is a free tool a browser extension um, and now a mobile app as well, actually, um, which automatically applies the, all the best valid voucher codes or coupon codes to your shopping basket. So the problem that we're trying to solve at the time and still exists today is that of shopping cart abandonment. So everyone knows when they've been on a website, you know, you add a bunch of things to your basket, you get to the checkout page and it says, you know, do you have a voucher code? Do you have a coupon code? And most people then leave the site, search for, you know, top shop voucher code. Yeah. And there's all these endless voucher code sites. None of the, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah none, none of the fucking, you know, voucher codes uh, work or they're expired or they're invalid or they're just made up. And it just ruins this user journey. Um, and this is a user journey that retailers spend millions and millions and millions of pounds on driving users to their website millions and more pounds optimizing those websites to increase conversions and yet at the most important page on the site the checkout page yeah. you're getting something like 75% of users leaving the site 
Um, now, it's not clear exactly why they're leaving. There's lots of reasons why people will abandon an e-commerce website. Sometimes it's because they weren't interested in buying or because, um, you know, uh, well, whatever reasons you abandon a site. But one of the core cool ones is to search for voucher codes. And then how many come back? So this really like fractured user journey um, is bad for retailers and and bad for consumers. So, uh, you know, we built this browser extension, which just literally just applies the voucher codes to the shopping basket and the best and valid voucher codes. We also had um, negotiated our own voucher codes as well, our own discounts with with retailers uh, unilaterally or bilaterally with with them. And... um, yeah, so that's that's what we did, and uh, it was yeah a pretty big hit with 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 retailers and with with users. So obviously, one of the main points about Pouch um, is that you went on Dragons Den. I did, and you didn't Dragon. just go on; you got all five dragons <laughs> yes. on board, which is quite yeah. a big achievement. Not many people have that happen. At the time, um, we were the the second company to have done that, and there, there had oh, been wow. fifteen okay. or sixteen seasons, so we wow. certainly weren't geared up for that kind of result because it hadn't happened before um we were mainly interested in um just being televised because most pitches that happen you know it's all it's all filmed over three months in manchester at bbc studios but most of the pitches are either not interesting enough um to get televised the only ones that do are the really good ones or the really bad ones Mm. kind of like x factor or something like that so our biggest priority was like, okay, how do we get televised? Well, you, usually the companies that get offers get televised. We knew that we weren't going to get laughed out of the room. It was impossible. The idea was too good. We'd already got some traction. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the only way that it would go badly for us is if we were really greedy with our equity demands yeah. mm-hmm. or our valuation, um, which can get a lot of founders unstuck because there is this sweet spot on that show if you'd li- if you'd like monitor it as we did very carefully that if you go in at a realistic, actually not even a realistic valuation, a very low valuation, Mm -hmm. then the questions are not really about the numbers, the valuation, your margins, like anything that some founders start sweating about. And then that's when the cameras get Mm. you. (laughs) Because it's a two and a half hour pitch. Oh, is it? And it's condensed into about 11 minutes. Wow. So if you fuck up once in two and a half hours, that's that's the money shot, right? So um, we we were keen for the the pitch not to be about our numbers because at the time we had whilst we had a lot of traction with retailers we had very few users I'm, I think we maybe you know, had like two or three thousand users it was not we'd only launched you know cut a few months before so we knew it wasn't going to be about that uh, we knew the the model was good in terms of the revenue model was good but in terms of our actual numbers how can you say that you're worth you know two million quid if you've got like 2000 users, get the fuck out of here, yeah. you're assholes. And then that's, yeah. that, that's what gets filmed. Um, if we, we, we came in at a very low valuation from memory, cause this was filmed about five years ago now. Um, from memory, it was 75,000 pounds for 15% of the business. Um, we already had raised at a much higher valuation than that before. Right. Yeah. Um, so did you go in looking for dragons or was it a publicity? No, it was totally yeah. publicity. I, I was wondering. Right. right yeah. yeah. It, look, oh, 85% of the deals that go through on that show never materialize. Yeah, I've heard that. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is that the founders uh, that go on the show are lying about the numbers. Then the dragons and their teams look under the hood and they go, this is all bullshit. Um, or in what happens in most cases, uh, you then leverage the fact you're going on Dragon's Den because it gets filmed. But when it gets televised, it's like maybe six or eight months. 
you then leverage that as an as a huge marketing coup to then uh, raise at a much higher valuation and then mm. you bend the dragons off. Mm. The BBC don't care because it's all content. The dragons don't care because they're, they're I don't think they're even interested in the businesses that they invest in. Yeah. Um so yeah, we we knew that look, you guys are business people. You know that uh the valuations on that show are like far lower than the street, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um because how are they going to be able to in a 2-hour uh, pitch without seeing the product, like understand the value of the technology, mm. understand the value of the team, uh, understand the value of the potential, the market, you know, whatever it is. Um, so we just thought, look, if we're not gonna, never going to take their fucking money anyway, let's play the game. Let's yeah, play yeah, the yeah. game. Mm. Yeah. Value ourselves at like 400 grand, even though the round before we'd raised it, like I think 1.2 million or something. Okay. And then, 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 then the subsequent round was like a much higher valuation than that. And um, and just play the game, and then it, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why it worked for us. Because mm. if you look at the questions um, that were asked of us by the dragons on on that episode, it were, none of them were really about the numbers. They did ask us numbers, but none of that was was televised. But it was more about the vision, the team, the opportunity. Some questions around whether retailers would like a product like Pouch, because there was a um, a big question mark over. Um, uh, whether a, a tool like Pouch can provide incremental value to retailers because okay. if you're providing a user a discount when they're already on the website that's problematic because you're just like kneecapping the retailer on their yeah. own on their own website wasn't there a company doing this in the US <coughs> at the time so at the honey, t- honey or so this is honey, the, yeah. this is the thing right you, you're I'm the loneliest man in the world because <laughs> Firstly, I came up with the idea for Pouch completely independently of Honey. And I can come on to how I came up with it in a second. I was working in on-site optimization at a startup called Yieldify. And we were using browser extensions mainly for business information. Um, And so, well, I'll come to that in a second. But anyway, so yeah, Honey were doing it. But back then, this is in 2016 or 2017, they had like maybe just under a million users. We knew this because we worked with somebody, we worked with somebody that had worked with them. We knew roughly their numbers. We knew that they were doing well. Um, But they sold to PayPal in 2019 for four and a half billion dollars. We didn't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Good night. And we should have done and we could have done and we didn't. And there's a lot of reasons why we fucked up that business royally. Um, But uh, the opportunity was enormous. And yes, people were doing it. Um, but it wasn't a copycat, as it okay. were. And actually, there were certain features that were involved in our product, which were far superior to theirs. One of them, which I really like. Um, it, so basically, a browser extension, when a user downloads a browser extension to their laptop, you're effectively embedded on every single website they visit, right? So unlike a banner ad, say you go onto the Daily Mail and then you'll see like an ad for Topshop. Mm. Well, that's just on the Daily Mail. That ad doesn't follow you everywhere, obviously. But because we sat in the browser and we were effectively therefore integrated on every single website, we could then understand where users were shopping and what competitors of our clients or our, our you know retailers uh, users were shopping at. So if somebody has been looking for a Lenovo laptop and they've been on Curry's and they've been on, you know, whatever um, uh, tech retailers in the past like hour, you know that they're clearly price comparison shopping for a particular model of laptop. Hmm. 
at which case you can just present them effectively with an ad on a competitor's site. So let's say, um, you know, our client is PC World and they are on, um, oh, come on, guys, name a retailer for me here. Harry's. Uh, John Lewis. John Lewis, right? Yeah. I used to know these like the back of my hand. But... <laughs> I used to so, call them when I was yeah, really yeah. <laughs> So So let's say you're on John Lewis. Curry's would, will pay us an enormous commission for driving a user from their competitor to their own site. Okay. And they would also give the consumer a massive discount for doing so. Because think about who's picking up the bill here, really. The user has come, John Lewis has paid for the traffic to come to their site. Mm. And at the point of conversion, knowing full well what that user's about to buy, they go, by the way, Susan, you know, we didn't know their names or anything, but, you know, come to PC World, that same laptop is like, 60 quid 70 quid cheaper which is by, by far a bigger discount than was available on the internet it's just genius because I mean, your, no, it is because, yeah, 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 no, because it when is. you're dealing with low when you're dealing with um high value relatively low margin products like um technology um uh, products stealing market share is a key was a is a is a key performance indicator it's a, it's a fundamental kpi so if you can prove that you're literally like robbing your own competitor of a sale and you're incentivizing the customer with a very good discount, and you're paying your affiliates really well. Like that is a deal that works for everyone, apart from who gives a fuck, John Lewis. Mm. Yeah. So that's a feature that was very, very, very controversial um, because that is like, like uh, gloves off mm. in terms of marketing. That's like truly guerrilla shit marketing. Mm. Um, and lots of retailers were very, I remember, upset about it at the time because they were thinking well, this is now just going to cause this horrible spiral into just like a mess online of people just, you know, um, just like screwing everyone's margins. But then they really kind of changed their tune when it came to Black Friday or Christmas or Cyber Monday or, you know. But so that's like, we had lots of ambition to really make that programmatic. At the time, those, and you'll remember, those kind of campaigns were very... Um, uh, manual and bespoke so mm. it would be you know worked just for a few products across a few competitors but really this could have been a very programmatic thing and and therefore like effectively a new channel like how do you even name stealing a sale from a competitor mm. i mean there's not even a word for that we were kind of trying to invent that and we we did invent it but it just never took off for a variety of reasons but yeah so anyway honey honey did exist but um they only really started to get traction as we was, we were much smaller. They were, they were still very big. Then they got the big VC deal. Then they pumped tons of money. Then they got like hundreds of millions of, I think they were at, at their biggest, maybe like 80 million users. But if you think 80 million users are transacting most of their um, uh, e-commerce activity through your platform and you're making like average 6 7% commissions off that, no wonder you get they sold to PayPal yeah. for four and a half mm. billion. So it was a great idea. We were super. Get, it could it could have been excellent, um, but yeah, it wasn't a copycat. Lo there were lots of copycats after. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially yeah. when we went on Dragons then. then like like yeah, everyone was doing it. Um, um, and just just before we kind of go on to that, then in more detail in terms of the sort of day to day running of the business, um, can you just take us back to the the start, if you like? Yeah. Um, you told us a bit about how you came up with the idea and how it was sort of formulated, but in terms of taking that first step from having the idea to actually putting an MVP together or minimum viable products, like what, what was the, what was the first few steps in terms of setting up the business? Well, <clears throat> so 
uh, I joined a startup called Yieldify as the third or fourth employee. And it was a really simple idea. You'll hate, you'll hate it because you've experienced it a million times. But um, it was a small piece of JavaScript, which gets implemented on a website or all, all e-commerce retailers, say Marks and Spencers or John Lewis. And it could then monitor the user's mouse movements, their speed and their behavior, and determine when the user's about to leave the site and then you based on the trajectory of the mouse movement towards certain exit points. And then a pop-up would appear. We call them overlays, never say pop-ups. <laughs> I was a sales guy then. Industry secret. <laughs> yeah. there, guys. And then, but more importantly, the content of the pop-up or the overlay would change depending on where a user would come from. So what, what website had driven them there or how many times they visited or what was in the basket or the value of the basket. And so it was, um, you, you wouldn't, certainly wouldn't call it artificial intelligence because it was all very manual, but it, it was intelligent. Um, and, um, and the idea was to decrease website abandonment or shopping cart abandonment. So you're about to leave the site and said, hey, continue to stay and get 10% off or give us your email and get 11% off or whatever it is. And um, but and it was really popular. Every retailer w was using it, and and it did work. But what was really great is the uh, the revenue model. So anytime a user would click to stay, so click interact with this pop up, a cookie would drop, an affiliate cookie would drop, and then when the user went on to make a successful purchase, Yieldify the company would make a commission. This could be like 10, sometimes 20% of the overall basket value. So it was a license to print money because mm -hmm. once you get embedded on Marks and Spencers, you have about 10 or 20 million overlays a month. Yeah. And if, you know, 20% of people are clicking yeah. on them and you're making 10%, do the math. You're yeah. make, you're just for one client, you're making all this money. You're piggybacking off their traffic as well. Yeah. You, and it was yeah. just, and, and so it just scaled like massively. I was the th uh, third or fourth employee. Within a year and a half, there was 200 people. Wow. Um, uh, Google Ventures and SoftBank put $11.5 million as a Series A into it. It was the first uh, European investment Google ever made. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And it was, so it was just an absolute rocket ship. So that was firstly, to answer your question, it was a great place to learn about startups because, you know, my, my boss was like 30, or I think he was even 29 or something. And it was just, everyone was making loads of money. It was loads of fun. Everyone was young and, um, and retailers liked it and stuff. It then, oh, I don't know if I should, I'm even allowed to say this. We stuff. can cut it if we need to. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but say it now. But say it. Basically <laughs> yeah. what happened, what it, I had left, I'd actually got headhunted to go to Singapore, but then the, it was the darling of, of the UK tech scene. It was the fastest growing startup in Europe. And then there was this massive lawsuit because it turned out a lot of the underlying source code had been allegedly lifted from a US competitor. And you know, the US are quite litigious mm. people, Americans. And, um, and then I think a lot of the funding dried up and, and it still, it still exists as a business, it still does well, but I don't think it ever reached what it, what it was supposed to. But anyway, I'm sitting there as a sales guy going, well, the challenge at Yieldify was getting this JavaScript onto the retailer's site. It was a small lift from an engineering perspective. It would take, you know, a Marks and Spencer's coder like two minutes to implement it. But if you know anything about tech companies, they've got these backlogs that can last two years. Like you, even if it takes two minutes, it's like, well, you're still at the back of the queue. Like one of my clients was Tesco Groceries. It took two years to get JavaScript implemented. So that's a huge 
um, challenge, a big bottleneck for growth because you need to basically wait for the retailers to do it. But it was like, well, how can you do the same thing, but without having to get the, the retailers to do any engineering work? And then it's, the idea struck me, well, you should do a browser extension. We'd been using browser extensions um, uh, already. So for instance, there was one called SimilarWeb um, yeah. and you could click on it and you can see, you could determine the popularity of a website because obviously whilst there's the big websites, you also want to, as a sales guy, identify Okay, anyone that has more than 50,000 users a month is now like a target for our business. And mm -hmm. that's why it was important for our day-to-day um, -day jobs to have this browser extension. So I was familiar with that. Well, if I click on this, then this, all this content comes up. And like the website owner doesn't know that this, this is even happening. And also, uh, you know, when I said that when these users click on these call to actions, these buttons on the pop-ups, and then it drops a cookie... That's what's called affiliate marketing. This is like an age-old industry. It's so all you need to do is apply to a retailer's affiliate program. There's no like negotiation. You don't have to go to their offices and sit down. There's no paperwork. You just go, well, we're a browser extension. We're doing this. Can we join your affiliate program? And like nine times out of ten, they just automatically accept you. Yeah. So that's how we were able to get like two and a half. When, when we did do pouch, two and a half thousand retailers, like more or less overnight. So I was like, okay. Well, the affiliate marketing infrastructure makes it very easy to get contractual relationships with retailers. The browser extensions makes it very easy to get um, across all retailers in terms of um, the content. Then it becomes a B2C challenge rather than a B2B challenge. So yeah. Yieldify was a B2B challenge. Our thing was like, well, we can be on every website, but we don't have any users. So I had this idea and I knew it could work, but I'm not an engineer. And I, so I took it to my mate, Johnny Plain, who's uh who's one of the other co-founders of pouch and we kicked around you know the idea of putting a business plan together what we initially were going to you know try to raise money and then from that money try to hire a, some developers to build it um and one of those developers was a guy called vic and when we met him he was like firstly you can't afford me before <laughs> <laughs> we having this conversation for yeah and he was like but look i love the idea and i want to join you as a as an equal co-founder and, and as the CTO and then that was great because um, we didn't have to raise any money before we built a product and that's really important that if anyone's thinking about you know particularly building a, a tech business try and you don't have a, any tech talent yourself bringing on somebody to your mission and getting them to build it with you and then once you can workshop a proof of, proof of concept or a minimum viable product then you can take it to investors and then you can raise and you raise more money at a much value, better valuation. Um, if we have to give away 20% of our equity up front for cash to pay for a, an engineer, hmm. on, in retrospect, that would have been a fucking stupid idea to, to do yeah. that. And, and usually is a stupid idea to do that. Um, you know, but then getting developers to, you know, he had a, a three-year-old daughter and a wife. And it's, it's a hard mm. sell, but that was his problem. Yeah, <laughs> he, had yeah. to, he had to make that. Just get it made. He had to make yeah. that sell to, to his wife. Um, just and, just touching on that, if I can. Um, obviously, um, as you said, you, you know, you approached Johnny with it first and you were school friends. Um, yeah. That's something we've touched on before. In our last episode, we had the founders of Furniture Box and they were friends from school. And we asked this uh, them the same question. Um, but what was it like for you approaching 
someone who was quite a good friend about a business idea? Because obviously that go that can go either way. And were you hesitant already, or you know, how did that feel? Oh uh, no! So Johnny and I were one of those friends that just talked about business all the time. Right. You know, um, I've known him since I was thirteen, and it's like he was probably my only friend that I did that with, more or less. You know, um, and we all we just always had. He always had an idea. I always had an idea. We never actually did anything with our ideas, which is, you know, it's still, still fun to have those conversations, right? That was kind of like what we used to do. I was going to say, that sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Right. But then eventually, when you do have an idea and it gels and the timing's right, then who's then that person you naturally go to? Yeah. Right? Subscribe to the ground floor. There you go. <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, look, when he was at Nottingham University, I was at Leeds and we came close to doing one, which would have been like, it was basically Lad Bible before Lad Bible. How do you get the university experience? Um, and uh, anyway, I can't be able to get into that. But it could it, it could have worked. I was actually the reason we I, we didn't pursue that is I was doing a, a different startup at, at university, which would have been a more of like an Uber Eats thing. Turns out it's quite expensive. <laughs> to do that. Yeah. But anyway, so okay, so it wasn't awkward coming to Johnny. And look, I knew it was a good idea. I absolutely knew it was going to work. It had to, because it was, as I've just explained, all the pieces were there. Yeah. It was just a case of building it and um, funding it. And 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 uh, he got very excited very quickly about it. And uh, then we um, really got to work. He, he's a chartered accountant. So he had a big, a very important skill set that um, I did not possess. Um, I mean, my, I, I managing my own personal finances is challenging, let alone, you know, managing a managing a business, which can get complicated. But then the obvious piece that was missing was the CTO, and yeah. that sort of bit kind of fell into um, our lap. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't difficult getting Johnny on board whatsoever. Mm. And importantly, um, I say this to people running founding businesses all the time it's like especially if you're at that very early stage and somebody is offering you a skill set that you don't possess and it's vital to the success of the business then it's much better just be equal yeah so the three co-founders all had exactly equal equity god forbid i said well it's my idea so i think i should get like four yeah. percent more or like well i'm the tech guy i'm the one building it i think i should get three percent more and then it's like off the bat it's unequal yeah mm. but like three yeah. percent and some people do get like that about points uh, and mm. it's the wrong time to do that that's for like other people yeah that's like after your your creates an awkward dynamic as well yeah. isn't it, from day one yeah and then what happens is further down the line if somebody has less skin in the game it's like, well, I'm, I'm not working to make you rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, no, we're all equal. We're all co e contributing equally. And what also you'll find is that in a founding team, particularly if there's three co-founders, actually, that's not true. It could be any number, including two, <coughs> is that depending on the business, the importance of the role um, fluctuates. Yeah. So um, when we were building the, the product, obviously... The developer role was was yeah. really important. It, sales took a backseat because we didn't have anything to sell. Yeah, and then uh, uh, raising money was really important. That's where the CFO really comes in, arranging meetings with like every fucking investor in the world, and making sure the pitch deck is on point. And you know, and so there'll be some times where it's like clearer who is adding the most quote unquote value, mm. but it all comes out in the wash over time. Mm. And so it's that's why it's important to have the foresight to go. Yeah, you might be the most, you might be adding the most value now, but believe me, these guys, these guys are going to carry you later. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the question that I think a lot of people <laughs> wonder when it comes to early businesses, and this is the thing that I'm always most excited about, which is that like, so you've built the product now, it's up and running. How do you get your first few installs? How do you go from just, you've got this thing, no one in the world knows about it. And then as you said, when by the time you got to Dragon's Den, I think you said you had about 2000 users by that point. Sure, yeah. So how do you get those first people? That's the most exciting part, I think for me. So obviously it really depends on the business. So if we, if we just take an application or a browser extension or something, it's going to be different as like if you make ice cream or something, mm. you know, get get that distribution, even early distribution is different. But if you take something that that can be, you know, consumed like a technology product, um, well, our what our journey was different in that we got on an accelerator program called Mass Challenge. For anyone listening at home that doesn't know, can you explain what an accelerator yeah, program is? An accelerator program is um, a program whereby well, so there's lots of different types. Usually, it's a it can be a physical space where you get free office space, free guidance, free legal advice, free accounting, maybe some money as well. And um, it's really a, um, a structured environment designed to um, you know, help early stage startups get past that early stage, hence accelerate. accelerate. Um, and do they take a percentage for this? Well, Mass Challenge didn't. Right. Mass Challenge was... And it, I don't, I don't, it stopped for a while. It, it may be coming back, but it was a great accelerator program. They took a hundred cohorts, a hundred companies. It was all in the, in the tobacco docks in Shadwell's, an excellent space. And it was all sponsored by Microsoft and Amazon and the, all these big legal firms. So there, it, the idea was, it was a very strenuous um, application process. But if you became one of the 100 startups, you had free office space for three months. And then at the end of three months, there was a competition. They picked the top 10. And then those 10 got prize money and office space for the next year. Okay. Um, and we did that and we got the top 10 as well. Amazing. Um, but we were able to, because we were in a community of 100 startups, um, and we had our own personal social networks, getting to 2000 actually wasn't too difficult for us because we just like asked people. When you go into one of these accelerator programs, there's a big community feel. Unless you're like direct competitors, mm. every, it's just so much love. Everyone just wants everyone to succeed, help out where they can. You know, you know, we we were having voucher codes for businesses that had like eight users. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. think we ever made any money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And but it's all. It's, and so it was like, hey, can you promote this thing for us? Can you can you use this? Can you? So getting to like that wasn't. That was more to stay an immediate network. Getting to those that number of users, obviously the. The bigger challenge is how do you do that scale? That's not scalable. Yeah, because I think um, my question with that would be if you're approaching people like, let's say, as you said, other businesses in the same space that you're working in, they're obviously not necessarily going to be your target customer or who's actually going to make the most use out of the product. And I think that's something where if you compare it to, say, um, let's say social media, it's the equivalent to, you know, buying followers where technically it's a follow on your profile, but they're not, you know, necessarily into country music or mm. knitting or whatever Well, see, so this is, again... It's difficult because we were very fortunate in that everyone could use Pouch because yeah. everyone buys online. Yeah. So it was a tool for everyone. Yeah. And so, but you're, 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 we're the exception that proves that rule. You're right. Like just getting somebody to download your gaming app and then like not, not a gamer. Yeah. Then it's like not good feedback. It's not, it's not really a user. And it is the equivalent to just buying a user. But for us, it was different because if you buy online, 
which believe me, every entrepreneur does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, then it, it is immediate user feedback. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, if I was listening to this and I did have a product that was consumed by everyone, um, you know, it's a, I think it's important to like obviously identify who your target customer is. And that's not always very clear. I mean, if I use, again, Pouch as an example, so one of the biggest mistakes we made early on once we did raise money, I think that the first amount of money we raised was relatively small. I think we raised just under 100,000. Um, and that was mainly used to build out the products and more and get product market fit and and acquire some users. Um, we really spent a lot of our the money earmarked for user acquisition or marketing on the wrong audience type. We went all in on students because we Why? thought- Who well, wants to the, save money? The thinking was students um, don't uh, want to save money. Students are very discount focused. Yeah. Um, that'll be a cheaper audience, uh, a cheaper type of user to acquire. Cheaper meaning the literal cost per acquisition mm. is lower than other user groups. And so we're going to do a campaign with Student Money Saver. We're going to be in all these student blogs. Yeah. We're going to reach out to student influencers, whatever. And we were right in that you could acquire a lot of students, but students don't have any fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a... What I don't want to use too many acronyms. LTV, the lifetime value of a customer, is dog shit because they don't buy anything. So yeah, they. they so then, what we discovered, having to having made that mistake, is you can then look at all right, who are our users? A very we we then took a not a scattergun approach. We um, try to get use, a sufficient number of users in every type of cohort, and then monitor their activity. And what shouldn't be in hindsight is very obvious to me but was very surprising at the time is that the um uh optimal audience were mothers because mothers have the purse strings in a household they buy most of the presents and gifts for, for, for family they pay for children they often pay for household uh, uh gifts appliances and importantly, groceries. Hmm. So actually, the um, uh, average order value and total annual spend of a mother is far higher, obviously, than a student. Hmm. Um, and so we then sort of focusing a lot of our attention on, on mummy blogs and hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, but that was an immediate data feedback. I'm with you. And so, um, but yeah, to, to your point, it's hard to know. That's a lesson that was expensive to learn based on data once mm. we had money. What do you do to, in your example, to somebody that's just starting with a product? How do you get those first few users? Sometimes you have to do things that don't scale. I'm pretty sure the guy at Airbnb said that, right? You know, you just have to, you know, it's not think about the cost of acquisition because the cost of acquisition, the cost of acquiring a customer when you're a brand new startup is not reflective of how it's going to be later. So really consider that budget as a learning budget. Mm. You know, it literally is just testing um, who your ideal audience is. And so forget about how much it costs to get them. It's like get them in the room, get their feedback. These are the people that you think are going to use it. Then maybe experiment with people that, yeah, maybe, maybe you don't. Um, it's hard to know without using a specific example, but yeah. really it's just experimentation. 
And then you can make really informed decisions. Had we done that experimentation early on, we would have saved most of our seed money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an expensive lesson to learn, but still really priceless, right? How long did it actually take to get the extension up and running from sort of speaking to Vic and being like, all right, this is what we want to do to kind of getting it off the ground? Pretty quickly, Mm. pretty quickly. Um, Bearing in mind, he wasn't full time on it. Yeah. Um, None of us were full time on it um, at the beginning. So he probably could have done the first proof of concept in like a month of full-time work right probably but i think it took about five months right 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 um going back to to dragon's den um how did that even come about because i think a lot of people will go how do you even get on dragon's den is it just a straightforward application process you have to know someone you know you have to play the game like with x factor like i have a story ready so the bbc uh, got in touch with with me right so i got a a call or an email saying um you know i'm such and such producer from from bbc's dragon's den we think you'd make good uh candidates for an audition for the show you actually audition first and then you yeah. go and it's actually the application process is quite lengthy um but i then found out how he found out about us because we were absolute press whores you know would be in absolutely anything and everything yeah can can i actually just take a quick second here because you dropped an absolute gold nugget when we were um having one of our legendary 6am conversations about a month ago and it, it was just it was such genius that i thought i have to remember to mention on the podcast can you please go into what you did with the guy who was writing the articles oh yeah, yeah this yeah, is yeah. this is honestly this is amazing i haven't had this. this is such a beautiful little golden wait nugget. i think we we're talking about the same thing Okay, so just because you said about being press whores and that came straight back, yeah, up, I have to make him say that. So there, so startups.co.uk is the industry magazine publication for startups, and every um, month or every week they'll have a spotlight, a founder spotlight, or a startup spotlight, and it's always the same questions, right? Um, you know whatever the questions were, who gives a shit, right? Uh, There's like 10 questions, yeah, always yeah. the same. And I also happen to know that journalists, by and large, are very lazy. Um, or maybe I shouldn't say lazy. They're, they have so many deadlines and these, so, so much shit they have to churn out now because of the state of journalism mm. in this country and, and abroad, that if you can write an article for them, you've just like made their day. So this same same uh, journalist was writing the same article like every single you know week, and so I was just like, and it was over Christmas time. So I was just like, look, you don't know me. I'm founder of Pouch. I've answered all your questions. Here you go. And she was like, cheers, thanks so much. And then like the next day, we were like the spotlight on Startups UK. Yeah. And then. The BBC guy was like, oh, I found out about you. From <laughs> Star- you, you. you. How great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good piece of Solve yeah. a problem. Do do their yeah. job for yeah, them. Yeah. Make it easy for them. And all, I would say, all she had to do was just push a button at that point. Yeah, she, that's, she, I think that's all she did do. And I think she, you know, I, I had this image in my head of her getting stressed over the holidays and this like email coming in. And yeah. Going, oh, thank God, you know. Um, uh, but we did a lot of things like that. We, our PR, we did all of our own PR. Yeah. And um, we... Um, some of it didn't scale, but some of some of it really did. There was this great resource, it's, and I'm pretty sure it's still around, called Response Source, whereby most journalists will, if they're writing about a topic, um, will just on this platform will say, um, you know, from the Daily Mirror, 
and I'm writing about you know money saving tips, mm. right? And then just puts it out there. And then usually PR companies who pay for this service, who represent you know you know um, what was that Martin Lewis thing called? Uh, money week, money, whatever, money like, week, somewhere. I think I don't know. Uh, let's say you know re represents um, honey or whatever. Um, then the PR guy will go, oh great, yeah, we'll um, we'll participate in your article if you need an interview or you need you know um, a quote or something like that. And so we just did that all the time because we managed to shoehorn pouch into any topic. I mean, I was literally talking about Brexit in some cases, like, you know, whatever, like founders, Brexit, anything that linked back to our website yeah. and optimized our website to conversion. Yeah. I was like, if you put a fucking link on this article, I'll do whatever you, whatever yeah. you want, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that we, we were in lots of different things we were in. Um, but we also, what we managed to do is, um, yeah, again, shoehorn ourselves into the places we didn't have much business. So obviously money saving tips is like straight, straight in our wheelhouse, you know, e-commerce data, kind of like shopping behaviors kind of in our wheelhouse as well then like fashion well we work with fashion retailers and like you know oh according to pouch you know this summer collection is that kind of shit anything mm -hmm. you know and i think it became one of those things where we were just in so much stuff and um you know I'm sure it drove everyone crazy as well. Like their LinkedIn's were just got like clogged up with yeah. all of our bullshit. Mm. But I think I do I do think that that all helps, and it's all free as well. You don't have to do anything to yeah. do that. And helping out journalists and then being the go-to person then is a feedback loop whereby they get in touch with you and sure. You know. And so after um, I'm sorry, no, actually we were talking about the run-up to Dragons Den, and then we got sidetracked on the press. But you said so the BBC approached you off the back of oh, the yeah, startups sure. um, article. So what did they say? And how did yeah, that so they so they they said um, you know we think we'd make you we, you'd make good candidates. Um, can we send you this application form for you to fill in? So I think they obviously get a lot of inbounds, a lot of applicants, but then they the producers also identify you know, companies I think would, would work well on the show as well. And so the I did not want to explore Dragon's Den. Why? This is all Johnny Plains, like... Right. Uh, I just thought, as bad as it sounds, it's like the X factor of entrepreneurs. Like, yeah. who gives yeah. a shit? We should be focusing, like, so much more of our energy on, on what we're doing. This seems like a massive time sink. But because they approached us... Because Johnny did talk about applying and stuff. But because they approached us, it seemed like maybe there's something there, there. So then we we did the application and they said, they had told us they'd probably get back to us in a couple of months. They got back to us like the next day. So we're like, okay, we're really on to a winner here. Then we had to um, uh, fill out m much more paperwork about, because they need to confirm that you're not uh, charlatans. Yeah, of course. So you need to, they actually need to see your books, they need to see your unrate, your revenues, your users, yeah, all this yeah. stuff, legals. Um, and then there is that kind of due diligence process, which did take a bit of time. Um, but we knew a bit past that. And then um, they invited us into White City, the BBC okay, um, yeah. uh, studios there, and where we did a, um, a practice pitch in front of cameras. Um, and again, we were told... Uh, it's going to take a long time. They proved us more or less immediately within a couple of days with a um, a film date. Um, and then that was like horrifying to me because I hate public speaking. 
I couldn't imagine anything worse than going on Dragon's Den yeah. and, have, and being that like sweaty asshole that can't remember the difference between net profit. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really appreciate you doing this, by the way, man. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and um, and so yeah, fuck yeah. And, <laughs> and so um, uh, that was really. So what we then did was we hired a Dragon's Den coach. Did you? Yes. <laughs> okay. So there's this woman in like that is such a niche. <laughs> I, I know. Career. But <laughs> you think about I mean, it. Fair right? enough. I mean, yeah, like yeah, you think, yeah, you yeah, think, it's a niche yeah. career, but my God, she's cornered it. Yeah. Like so, I don't know. I think I think I, I think it was Old Street or somewhere we went, and um, and but she the, the Dragons Den it, the dra- Dragons Den entrepreneurs become their own community. So I knew people that had been on it. And then I approached them for their advice. Yeah. And loads of people have approached me for advice subsequently. Um, Sam from, um, what's it called? Ad, uh, what's that? New, uh, ad, generate ads, you know, which he did really well. Um, so, uh, yeah, we got this woman to te- to kind of, it was mainly for me. It was mainly for my confidence um, because Johnny could speak in front of anyone, you know, how to time your walk as you go in, what to do with your hands. Because like, even on the show, I don't know if you've seen the episode in a while, but like the camera guys keep focusing on my uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like on some I fucking like, coat up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and how to pace yourself and that. So yeah. we just practice and practice and practice and practice okay. and practice. And then, and then, but then the whole thing, the entire business became geared up for smashing this Dragonstone episode and then milking that whole thing for all it's worth yeah, yeah. and putting every ad dollar or pound into as seen on Dragon's Den, you know. Yeah, so right. that was the whole push. Like this, it became make or break. We didn't spend any money. When we got the, the film date for Dragon's Den, we didn't spend a single penny on anything um, other than just operating costs. Yeah, yeah. Because we were like, well, a pound spent now is like going to be worth 10 pounds yeah. once this once airs, been on, yeah, Dragon's if Den. it goes well. So like we'll just need to save our money and so yeah. And so did it afterwards? Did you notice a big sort of shift? Well, or it, did you not? It, after it te- was televised. Yeah, after it launched, did was there a big uptick in sort of overall? I don't know. Either both user generation. And yeah, there was. The, but the biggest shame was that we were only desktop. Mm. We were not on mobile. What? Right. It was it was that kind you of... can't really have a mobile browser extension. The okay. browser extension only really suits desktop. Yeah. We hadn't built a mobile application. We could have built an app, but it would have it just it was too early. Yeah. Had and so when you look at the numbers, we had um um at any one during the it it was televised twice over one week uh, on the night it was first televised on BBC One we actually got the the last spot which is the the best spot that's like the fifteen minute end of the episode yeah, yeah, yeah. slot before the lead into whatever else was on um, and uh, and any one time throughout the fifteen minutes that we were on there was a, a hundred eighty thousand people on the site wow um, at any one time so I think we the I can't remember I think we had something like. 400,000 hits. Wow. Um, okay. Just on that wow. one uh, evening. Yeah. Um, and actually a lot of engineering work went into making sure that we could handle that, that traffic. That we could handle that traffic. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm talking about it like it was back in the old days. This, this is 2017, but yeah. things like servers and, and cloud infrastructure have changed dramatically since yeah. then. That was a real yeah. concern that, that we would have to 
able to um, handle this chatting, sure. which we did. And Rick did a brilliant job. We had this massive party with all our family and friends, and he couldn't come because he oh, had no. to be with the, other, with the other tech guys, making yeah. sure the whole thing didn't fall apart. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we did see a big uh, uptick. But to my point about mobile, like ninety percent of the traffic was right. mobile. Okay. Because you think you think about it from a from a viewer's perspective, you're sitting on the couch, just watching dragons and thing. You're on your phone, yeah. type in pouch. Oh, you can't. So what we had done is on the mobile site there was a mobile application coming soon. Please please leave your email address. Right, right, okay. And we did get like tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of, of email addresses, which we were able to then utilize later. Um, but it was a huge um, uh, lost or missed opportunity yes, that, right. we, that we didn't yeah. have that. But we still, look, I, I, I think we got something like 80,000 users or something wow. directly okay. from that okay. show. Wow. Um, which was massive considering we had like 3,000 before. <laughs> yeah, of course. And yeah, then we sure. were able to, um, and then we, uh, then it, it got, um, re-aired a couple more times and it was like aired in Nigeria once and it was aired somewhere else on the BBC World Service. So we kind of had like weird pockets of yeah. international traffic. Um, but the most frustrating thing, and I still talk to my therapist about it, is, <laughs> is um, YouTube wouldn't let us keep it on YouTube. Really? Oh. It was so annoying because Copyright. it was like the, uh, without sounding arrogant, it was the most, amazing episode yeah five dragons all the comments were like this is incredible you know it, and it was it was brilliant it was just absolutely perfect it yeah. couldn't have gone better and every time we uploaded it it got taken down after like a few days but even when it was up it was like got to like two or three hundred thousand views and then it was down oh, yeah. and, and what, what was m most annoying about it is that loads of other people the, B the bbc um dragon's den channel was uploading everyone else's <laughs> but not ours I and really so the people that had kind of like okay pictures were already at like two, three million views. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And we're sitting there going, oh my God, this is a nightmare. Because <laughs> that would drive me because, insane. Because YouTube at that time had like um, a 60 40 split, it was mostly desktop traffic. Right. So we knew that like anyone watching that yeah, is going to yeah, be yeah, downloading yeah. Pouch. Like we, I reckon we had an 80% conversion rate on yeah. that kind of traffic. And it was just, I'll still not, not get over it. Like, And then by the time it went up, it was too late yeah, the, yeah yeah it had already kind of petered out by to um well to bring you onto a <laughs> sorry <laughs> i got really upset no it's good it's I still, good. That, still sore. that would drive me that would drive me up the wall um but to to move on to a more positive note and also just because i'm conscious of time i want to dump i want to dump i want to jump uh, i don't, don't want to dump live on air but i want to jump uh into your exit because I think that's sure. a cool thing for people to, to understand. So just sort of... Well, actually, it's that. not that positive of a story. I know, but for, I the, mean, for the viewers... For someone like me and the viewers who doesn't know the story, then, yeah. what, well, what was the kind of lead up? And, I know it's a sore spot, but so them, what happened? Look, okay, fine. I was an entrepreneur that sold a business for loads of money. I'm not complaining. But it could have been sold for a lot more money. And here was the problem. We joined another accelerator, and I'll, I'll be quick. How much time have we got? Yeah. Got about, like minutes. Minutes. So, we got about eight minutes. Yes. We got we got the final question to do, but we'll be fine. So um News UK, Rupert Murdoch, Rebecca Brooks, two of the worst people in the world, had this accelerator program called um News UK uh startups or something, I forget what it's called. And they identified three startups that they wanted to bring into News UK to see if they could add value to their various digital assets. Pouch was one of them. Another one was um, the guys that do the energy comparison stuff. Um, something uh, look after my bills. 
who exited and did really well, and, and some other company. And the idea was we were going to be in the News UK building just down the road from here. And uh, it was going to, we were going to work with them for um, six weeks. And we were working on the um, the Sun promotions team, you know, how they got like that bingo shit and yeah. got all the uh, the codes and all that stuff. And it was a really well-suited business. And at the end of it, they were going to give us two million quid, right? And not only that, but they were going to promote the shit at a pouch on the front pages of the Sun. The Sun at the time was bigger than the Daily Mail. It's the most widely read digital newspaper in Europe. So it was like, this is how we're going to explode, Yeah. right? Yeah. So we'd already been on Dragon's Den. We'd already got some traction. We knew it was working. And we said no to every venture capitalist that was after us. And we were not raising money because we were all in on Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, Risky game. And so what happened yeah. was six weeks go past. And we're working. When I say when we're collaborating with them, I mean, every single day we're working with their team. Every single, We know all of them. And we had meeting after meeting after meeting with Rebecca Brooks, with um, the chief commercial officer of News UK, which is the Sun and Sky and the and the and the um, uh, well, whatever the some one of the other ones, not the Times, and um, and all of the CFO, and we did a board meeting after board meeting, and uh, and the, and it just went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months. And we uh, we're still working out their building for six months and hadn't been paid, hadn't been given. The, the the money, right? And we proved it worked with all of their various digital assets and everybody loved us. And most importantly, we'd stopped spending any money on user acquisitions. We weren't growing mm. because we didn't need to because we were going to have this yeah, whole yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And then we started running out of money because then we, because we had a staff of like 11 people and then we had to start making layoffs. And then- um, Shout out me. Yeah, Ollie over here was one of them. And so, yeah, we didn't get Moving on. Yeah. And so anyway, and then at the, all, at the end of it, they go, guys, we're not investing in any of the startups. And I'm, you know, really sorry. So now who's going to want to invest in a company that hasn't grown in six months? Yeah. yeah. Who wants to hear that story? And we've now, like, I um, had to go back to pay myself absolutely fuck all. So did Johnny, so did Vic. Um, and we had to, like, had to let go of all, almost everyone at the, at the company. And it was like, what just happened? It was like the most shell-shocking thing. You couldn't believe that um, that they just pulled out of this deal. And thankfully, the Daily Mail got wind of the fact that the Sun was working with us, and they effectively bought us. The right? Daily Mail, okay. Yeah, they bought. there's a company called Global Savings Group, and the Daily Mail was their biggest client. And the Daily Mail was like, hey, we like these guys. So global global savings group. Okay, so they based in Munich the almost. Yes, kind of. Yeah, and so when we flew out to Munich and we did some uh, we did some due diligence with them, very nice guys. But by the end of it, honestly, we were exhausted. We'd fallen out, and we just we were sick of being poor, and we just sold. And then that's basically how the exit happened. I mean, maybe Johnny and Vic see it differently. Um, mm but I know they pretty much feel the same way. Yeah. So then, so basically it was, a, it was, ex, it was a great exit and it was a cash exit and we got really good salaries working at global savings group, but it wasn't like what it could have been. It wasn't the sun thing. And yeah, we didn't, yeah, it wasn't the honey exit. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why it's, I'm, it's clearly, 
Well, it's bitter, bitter. I can understand why. I can understand why. I mean, after the way I've explained it, you can see why. Like, it's supposed to be like using the sun as this rocket ship to like flog this amazing product to like the masses. And instead, it was like, you we you ran out of money and you can't even get VC money now and and we was like fine just buy us. Um, <laughs> well, on that cheerful. Tune <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in next time. Um, hey, but you wanted honesty, right? No, we love it. Always. We love it, man. Wouldn't change it for the world. Um, we're gonna we're gonna round off now. Um, but there's one question that we ask all of our guests, um, which obviously, as you know, the point of this podcast is to focus on the early stages of business, the practical steps, not the kind of uh, sort of airy fairy stuff like the believe in yourself, work hard kind of stuff. So we ask every guest that we have on. We basically say, if you could give one piece of practical advice to anyone who might be looking to build their own thing, start their own project or start a business whatever it might be what's one piece of practical actionable advice that you could give whether you just determine this as practical or not i truly believe in getting a co-founder and if not one two all the data suggests that sole founders are like far more likely to fail and or or to put another way companies with more than one founder um, I think the sweet spot is usually th- is three co-founders um, far more likely to succeed. The reason is obvious, not just that you have different skill sets, so you're bigger than the sum of your parts, which is, of course, true. But it's, that it's an incredibly emotional thing to start a business. It's incredibly creative and exciting and exhilarating and potentially profitable and all these things. Mm. But it's very emotional. Some days you don't want to get out of bed. Some days you're sick of doing it. And then that's when you need your other co-founder yeah. to be like, Let's do it. So that's a practical thing. Like that truly is fine. It might cost you half your equity, mm. but it will like more than double your chances of success. And so I think the ma- maybe if you're a sole trader or something, a painter and decorator, you don't need a co-founder. But I think most people need need, need that emotional support. Um, you also want to share the journey with somebody. Like one thing you'll notice is nobody gives a fuck about your company. Mm. Like really nobody cares that much. They may, you might pretend to care at a barbecue, but like that's about it. And so like to get yourself motivated when you're constantly being rejected, which you will every day mm-hmm. at the beginning, you need someone to go, oh, yeah, but they're idiots. They don't get it, you know, and maybe they are idiots yeah. and they don't get it. So I, I just think even if you don't, even if you think you've got everything right and you know and you're the smartest guy in the world and you've got product market fit and you've done your business plan, uh, maybe you get a co-founder. That's what I would say. I think, I think that's, that's really good advice. I think that's an yeah. amazing piece of advice. Yeah, and, really I, and I personally, I experienced that when I started doing music, I approached one of my best friends and I was like, I'm an artist. I'm not, I, I'm not organized. I'm not organized. I don't have the admin kind of stuff together. I need a manager. And I feel like you're the, you're the person to do that. And I could mm. not have done that whole journey without, without him. I just, I couldn't have done it. So I, I really rang true. And it makes it more enjoyable. The so much Definitely. more. I mean, the hard part. key part of it. Yeah. You have fun with this. Yeah, Otherwise, what's the yeah, point? Yeah. Totally. And as you said, in the low moments where you might be doubting yourself, you have someone that's like, look, I believe in this thing. I believe in what you're doing. We're going to do it. And in, the, and in the high moments, you have someone to be like, dude, we fucking did it. Like, yeah. it's, I think that's such a great piece of advice. Mm. Thanks for that. That's really amazing. Right. Um, thanks for an amazing conversation. I mean, that's. Well, I can't believe that's an hour. Wow, that was... I know. It flew. I, I, I want to go on for longer. We'll have to get you back. Uh, we'll have to get you back on another time, hey, anytime, um, guys. and talk about London Reporting House. Um, before we go, do you want to talk about anything you got going on at the moment, or anything you might want to plug or spread? Not really. No. I mean, we're we're, la- we're launching London Reporting House in uh, sort of late Jan, early Feb. Um, but unless you are a repo trader, you're not going to care. <laughs> yeah. And I doubt your audience are repo traders. <laughs> I think they're entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so no, I'm just here to, to be here for you, to meet you guys. Well, not meet you guys, uh, spend some time with you guys and hopefully help out to anyone yeah. listening. Yeah. No plugs on this. 
Oh, what a wholesome guy. Yeah, I know. It's just nice add that yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Um, yeah, mate, obviously, you know, you're one of my best friends. I'm so glad to have you. It's been, it's been Thanks so for awesome. having me. Um, no, it's been a pleasure. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. What an amazing episode. Um, so much value in that. I'm going to have to go over that a million times and pick everything out. Um, if you enjoyed it, make sure to hit subscribe, turn on the notification bell um, so that you never miss any content. We've got content coming out all the time and we've got a new episode with a brand new guest coming out every single week. So make sure you subscribe, rate us and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Take care, guys.